Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you have not signed up for Theology in the Raw's Exiles in Babylon conference yet, then you absolutely need to do so because space is filling up. That's March 31st through April 2nd here in Boise, or you can live stream the conference if you can't make it out here. But we're going to have loads of awesome fun here in Boise, Idaho, if you can make it out here, March 31st to April 2nd, or you can go to PrestonSprinkle.com and find out all about the Theology in Ra, Exiles in Babylon conference. Um, also, if you have benefited from the show, please do consider supporting it through patreon.com forward slash Theology in Ra. Or if you can't afford to or just don't want to, please consider leaving a review. Um, there's some pretty lame reviews on <laughs> the podcast app, which are super entertaining. I love reading the one-star reviews. They're hilarious. But if you want to give it a higher review because you've benefited uh, a bit from this show, then please do leave a review. Consider sharing this show on your social media outlets. My guest today is Dr. George Yancey. Uh, Dr. Yancey has a PhD in sociology from University of Texas at Austin. He is a professor of sociology, sociology at Baylor University. He has written lots of books, uh, several on race and racism, and he has a forthcoming book called Beyond Racial Division, which you can pre-order now on Amazon, which you definitely will want to get a hold of, especially after you listen to this awesome conversation. So Please welcome to the show the one and only Dr. George Yancey. Hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in Ram here with Dr. George Yancey. George, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't we begin just by telling uh, our audience just a little bit about who you are and what you do, and then I really want to get into um, your forthcoming book, uh, Beyond Racial Division, because I just, I, man, I, I, yeah, I can't wait to dig into that one because I could probably, uh, yeah, I have a sense of kind of what you're gonna, where you're gonna go in it, and I'm just really interested in what you're gonna have to say. So yeah, tell us about who you are and uh, what you do. Yeah, I, I work as a sociologist at Baylor University with the Institute for Studies of Religion. <clears throat> I've been there about three years now. I spent the 19 years before that at University of North Texas. So, uh, so I've been in sociology. I've been writing about racial issues for quite a while. In fact, I took a little break from it for about 10 years <laughs> until last year. Uh, so I've been dealing with this personally as a Christian, intellectually, academically, for a good chunk of my life. Okay. And that's why I hope I can bring something different to the table uh, than what a lot of other people are bringing. What, what led you into sociology? Was that something that you feel like you've always been interested in? or? No, not really. I didn't even, you know, they don't teach sociology in high school as a sociology course when I was growing up. Maybe they do now. They didn't. So I didn't know anything about sociology when I went to college. I took a couple of sociology, but I majored in economics. Okay. And it wasn't until grad school when I was trying to get my master's in economics that I found out that I really didn't have that much more interest in economics. I took a, some other sociology courses that got me interested in sociology. And so it was okay. an acquired taste, if you will. And where'd you do your, your grad work at? University of Texas. Okay. In Austin. Hey friends, I'm so sorry, but we had some audio problems over the next 10 to 12 minutes of our conversation. I didn't even realize it until we looked at the recording 
uh, a week later. So our conversation was fluid and there were no glitches, but apparently there was some glitch with the audio for the next 10 or 12 minutes. We chit-chatted a bit about where he is teaching at, uh, at Baylor University, about his denominational background. We talked about his book a bit. And then I asked him a question about active listening. He was talking about active listening and I wanted him to tease that out a little more. So we're going to jump to that question and the the first few seconds of his response there those that those few seconds are gone but i think you'll be able to get the gist of what he's uh talking about here it's such an important thought that he has about active listening so we're going to jump right into that question and we say listening to other people are you are you saying primarily people who maybe might not share your the perspective you currently hold i mean just as a general statement like getting outside of an echo chamber and just having genuine curiosity towards other that's fine that we have those people in our lives, but if that's all we listen to, and what research will say is if if people if you don't have around people around you who disagree with you, yeah. you become more confident that you are right huh. to the point that you cannot understand how other people can even think something differently, and then and then and then you can see where the conflict will come from that. And I think that how can you even believe this thing that that goes against my belief because everyone around me. Yeah, it says that this is right. It must be right. And how can you? Therefore, you must not only be wrong, but there must be something wrong with you. Yeah. And right now, both sides are calling each other racist. Yeah. yeah. Because if you can't clearly see what I and all my friends <laughs> see, something's wrong with you. You must be racist. Yeah. And of course, that gets us nowhere. That's where your defenses go up. That's where your people can no longer listen. That's so common today, Joe. I mean, what you're describing is. Great, but I'm like, it's so rare <laughs> for for well, I I, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe some of the loudest voices are controlling the conversation. As I talk to just yes. normal people, like you get off Twitter or whatever, and you talk to real people, like your yeah. neighbor and stuff. I feel like there's a lot more yeah. nuance. I don't know. Like I feel like people are it's hungry. Hard to have this conversation on social media. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who? I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm kind of oh. darting around, but um. I, that oh, confirmation bias thing is is huge, and especially in a day and age. I mean, even throwing COVID and all this stuff, and like views on vaccines mm-hmm. and masks. Like, yes. there's always a, you know somebody can find some study somewhere that supports their preconceived view, and then it makes it look like, oh no, I'm just following the science, whatever that means. But it's like, right. yes. no, you you know, I don't know. Like, it's like you know, as, as a scholar, as a fellow, I'm a biblical studies guy. And, It'd be like somebody mm-hmm. saying, well, you know, biblical scholars say that. I'm like, ah, stop there. <laughs> There's, there is no <laughs> consensus on anything in biblical. Yeah. Well, scholars say that Genesis 3, no, yeah, some say all kinds of things, you know, like um, the idea that there's some sort of consensus yeah. among scholars, that, that doesn't really, I don't know. Um, but but that, that it's that confirm. It's like we want, we already have a view that we hold to, and there's probably complexities of why mm-hmm. we hold to that. And then we'll just kind of grab hold of stuff that supports that, which is all the – is just everything you're saying. Sorry, I'm, I'm just repeating it, just getting outside no, no, of the echo chamber. No. Um, what are you, I'm curious. What, what are your views on – so I, I read a wide diversity of stuff on the race conversation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll post pictures. I'm reading this. I'm reading Thomas Sowell. I'm reading Kindy. You know? yeah. and, and people are like, yay yeah. and boo and yay and boo. And like, well, no, <laughs> you should be saying yay. Of, yeah. We should read wide right, range yeah. of – smart people on you this. Should, so, you should. Um, your, what's your perspective on the, the, I guess, the conversation slash debate on, you know, systemic racism versus 
personal agency. And I think that I, mm-hmm. you already know probably what I'm saying there. So if you need me to explain more, yes, but, um, yes. you know, what the, we, obviously there's, there's economic, there's very, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of disparities that still exist between yeah. majority white people and, and people of color, uh, African Americans in particular. And there's lots of debates about why that is. Do you have a, have you, do you have a opinion? Yeah. On that I mean, or? look, uh, reality is so often so much more nuanced than we give it credit for. We think that, you know, this is how we create heroes and villains and, and, and there's one cause of things and that sort of stuff. So is there systemic racism, discrimination? Mm-hmm. Yes, there's, there's clear research on that. And, and, and it doesn't mean that everyone's a racist, obviously, but there's, there's still institutions that have these centuries of abuse, it's less scars and there's less scars in our institutions and it impacts us. Is there human agency? Yes. I can give you examples of people of color who blame the man and yet, you know, they've not gotten off their behind in order to do what needs to get done. What wise have to do in order to succeed? And so before you can blame the man, you have to at least do the bare minimum of what other people are doing. Okay, so there's human agency as well. Okay. So reality is is not as simple as saying it's only and always and you know, institutional racism is only and always human agency. There's 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 a mixture okay. of all of that that impacts the way race looks in our society. I, and I think that that is part of why the conversation is necessary because some people focus so much on institutional racism, yeah. they sometimes don't see that, well, human agency matters too, and vice versa. They focus on human agency, they don't see how that matters. How much it each matters in a given situation I think varies. I think there are situations where the institutional racism is so powerful, so overwhelming that human agency is not that big of a deal, and vice versa. Hmm. And so there's no one size fits all that we need to say yeah. it's 70% this and 30% that. But we need to have the conversation to, to get more say of nuance. And when we talk to people who differ from us in a, in a way where we can hear them, they can hear us, I think we will gain more nuance in our understanding of what's happening in our society. I think that's lost in a polarized America yeah, uh, too often. Yeah. And we don't understand the nuance of, of what's occurring around us. Who are some people that in the race conversation that you would say are doing this well? Like who are, if you could recommend a few people on besides yourself, <laughs> yeah. are there some leading thinkers that you've really appreciated that, that are providing helpful nuance? Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as leading thinkers, it's hard for me to think of people who are popular right now that I think are actually doing this. Okay. I, I know a book's coming out. Uh, Isaac Adams, uh, I think, it's, is it speaking of race or thinking of uh, speaking or talking about race? Where he is a Christian minister who talks about how we can have this dialogue from a point of view as a minister. Mm-hmm. And he does an excellent job of, of holding all sides accountable for the dialogue, hmm. not for the outcome, for the dialogue. And so there's, 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 you know, there's ideas like that. I really would like to see, I mean, there's Jarvis Williams. He has some really great yeah. stuff that he's coming out with. Uh, you know, of course I got to give a shout out to my boy, Michael Emerson, yeah, yeah, who yeah. Uh, I've, I've worked with him and, you know, his, his classic book divided by faith, yeah. I think still is must reading for Christians, even though it's 20, 25 years old. I know, I don't it's know how so it's, it's like book. it was written just a few years ago. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. But, but, it, but, it, but it's a classic. 
Uh, I hope that over time we can get a groundswell of thinkers who push this, because I think you're right. I think a lot of people really want this as opposed to the other two ideas. And, and I looked at this survey a while ago. It was on critical race theory, mm-hmm. but it, it, gave, it broke things down for me. And as I look at the results of that survey, I don't remember them exactly, but I came to the conclusion that it's probably about 15, 20 percent of people who are so wedded to colorblindness mm-hmm. that they're not open to the conversation. Mm-hmm. About 15, 20 percent of people are so wedded to this sort of activist anti-racism, they're not open to the conversation. But I think there's 60 to 70 percent of the population that while they may favor one or the other or maybe yeah. in the middle – they're open to something new, mm-hmm. and they're and I think they're open to hey, can we have a real conversation yep. in our society? So I think the majority really is there, but they're not the ones who get on Fox or right. MSNBC or CNN or PBS or anything like that. I, I just listened to a fascinating podcast yesterday with an author. She's got a PhD from Berkeley. I'm I'm blanking on the name. I, I can put it in the show mm-hmm. notes, but. The whole book was on how media outlets have just exacerbated the polarization. And she even talked about moving from like an ad-based revenue source for media outlets to subscription base. So now they're getting their funding from subscriptions. And the people that are going to subscribe are the ones that are going to pay money to hear what they want to hear. And it has just exacerbated this polarization. And then they know that certain emotions like anger and outrage. How could that person say that? I can't believe anybody yes. was so stupid. And, and yeah. both camps are doing this, you know, and subscriptions yes. go up and they're all losing money. It, it was fat. It blew me away. I mean, it, it blew me away in the sense that it kind of confirmed a lot of what I've already seen, but um, my confirmation bias, I guess. Um, yeah. but, uh, that, how much do you think, yeah, that the media outlets – um, have increased this kind of echo chambery polarization. Do you think that's a big part of the problem, or, or just a part? I think it is a part of the problem. There's no, I have no doubt that's a part of the problem. That if you want to listen to certain views, you go, you turn on to a certain media, and they they deliver you what you ask for. Uh, I remember, I think it was not too long ago that uh, on MSNBC, their morning show, I think Morning Joe had. Oh, ben Sasson. Oh. And they had Ben Sasson critiquing Trump. But Ben Sass also, you know, said a few things, you know, because he's a Republican. And so he sure. critiques some things, you know, probably a little bit more gently. And from what I read, that the people on the show were outraged that yeah. Sass would dare to critique the Democrats. Because they turn on the Morning Joe, and they turn on Morning Joe to get their daily fix of progressive politics. Likewise, when you turn on Fox and Friends in the morning, you're there to get a physical conservative politics. We have a polarized society, and race is a big issue of that polarization, but it's by no means the only issue of that polarization. Yeah. And because we're so polarized, it makes the racial conversation mm-hmm. worse. I, you know, I'm still in the midst of thinking about how this really fits together in, in this sense. You know, we look at race and politics and religion. And they somehow just interact. So yeah. you get certain archetypes. So you get the white, evangelical, conservative, mm-hmm. you know, political conservative. And then you get the, the, the Colin Kaepernick, black activists. And, then, and I think that we, we create these archetypes 
in ways to allow us to more easily have enemies we can hate and heroes we can love. Yeah. And I think that that's part of why we're so polarized. And so the race is a part of that whole polarization piece. Part of my hope is that maybe if things that I say get caught on well enough, uh-huh. and even if we start just looking at this racially, then maybe we could pull a thread at the sort of process where a polarization that we're in, and maybe we can it can fall apart and we can say, hey, we can have differences of opinion, and I can think you're wrong about something, and that's fine, but that doesn't mean I have to dehumanize you. Because hmm. uh, I fear too much in our society, the way that we talk about other people, we have to dehumanize them. Right, right. Oh, man. Okay, you've mentioned in passing CRT, so I have to ask you your, <laughs> your uh, thoughts on CRT. Because that, that, I feel like that's just that lay, just that initials are polarizing, you know, and have been just, I don't know. I don't yeah. I, we could use a lot more listening, I think, in that conversation. We, give us give us your perspective on CRT and uh, maybe explain what it is for those who think they know what it is. Yeah, you know, I, I see CRT as sort of a placeholder for the argument on racial issues. Huh. And so, you, you know, what is CRT? Well, when I taught at University of North Texas, I taught undergraduate racial ethnicity – uh, I taught my uh, first graduate level, uh, the first graduate level race ethnicity course, and then an upper division graduate level in race ethnicity. Only in that upper division, graduate level race, ethnic- race ethnicity, did I discuss CRT. Because for me, it was not, it was, it was something that I, I wanted students to have a certain amount of background before I jumped into something like that. And really, it wasn't that important of a uh, theory. It was out there with other theories. But it wasn't like this dominant theory that was dominating everything. And now it's been made into this to this behemoth, this monster that you know that controls the conversation well beyond its influence. Right. Having said all that, yeah. so that's that's where I come from on that. I think that certain individuals use it to to, to articulate an opposition. To something that is CRT related, but not CRT proper. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a derivative of CRT, but it's not CRT proper. Uh, uh, there. So, uh, so what's happened is that everything becomes CRT. So, let's say that you you have D'Angelo taught in your school, and it, it's like, oh, that's CRT. Well, D'Angelo technically is not CRT, but you say CRT because that becomes the sort of the the. the uh, the, the way to frame this, the way to signal that this is bad, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are those who say, well, CRT has no influence in our schools. And I find that a little disingenuous. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to say they're not teaching CRT in the schools. And I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's true. It's quite another to say there's no influence of CRT because even people like Kendi says he's a huge influence by critical race theory. So if you're you're going to teach the ideas of Kindy, you're going to teach the ideas that have been influenced by CRT. Yeah, yeah. So the other side has their other, their ways of sort of massaging the issue that's less than, let's say, less than honest. But my druthers is that we just eject CRT out of this conversation altogether okay. and directly discuss the issues at play. And so if you have a problem with, with white fragility being taught in your junior high, and I personally would, then discuss that. 
Okay. Don't say this is CRT. Let's get it out. Discuss here. Here's why I think D'Angelo's white fragility is not good to be taught to schools. And then focusing on that rather than say it's CRT and therefore we have to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and, and just one last thing on CRT. I went to the Southern Baptist Convention last, last summer and a lot of people had these stop CRT buttons walking around saying there's stop CRT. And they would go up and they would say, we got to, we can't have this taught in our schools because we got to stop CRT. I remember sitting next to my pastor going, pastor, that's not CRT. <laughs> and, and it's sort of like that they're trying to search for a way to articulate what they don't like. Yeah. And it's just become this placeholder and it's reached into the church as well as everywhere else. And so rather than people the church discussing honestly problems they may or may not have, it's just a, it's CRT, it's bad, let's get rid of it. Yeah. And it's just a sort of a, a, a weak way of thinking about how we're going to address these issues. That I mean, you you articulated, and I've, I've dabbled, okay? So I've read some so original source material from critical race theorists, mm-hmm. and I've read D'Angelo and Kendi and other people that seem kind of um, adjacent or at least influenced by or communicating some of the similar ideas but wouldn't be kind of critical race theorists and uh, yeah i'm trying to put it uh, you exactly what you said is exactly what i've been thinking and haven't been able to articulate that it's like a placeholder for maybe some bigger broader racial perspectives that some people find troubling on the flip side you know when i hear people typically more progressive say well none of this is crt you're talking about crt but this has nothing to do with it i mean that's not let, let me read you a quote from um Delgado in, in uh, CRT, in inter- mm. Critical Race Theory in Introduction, he says, uh, consider in how many disciplines scholars, teachers, and course prof- profess almost incidentally to embrace critical race theory. Consider as well how many influential commentators, journalists, and books such as uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow mm. develop critical themes while hardly mentioning their origins in critical thought. Might critical race theory one mm. day diffuse into the atmosphere like air? So that we are hardly aware of it anymore. So that that that's that shows that that there can be an influence of this mm-hmm. highly academic, largely legal kind of theory that does diffuse. In, in the words of one of the main proponents, you know, diffuse into the air, so it does have an effect on yeah. many other things. Um, so that's kind of it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, well, it's not. Right, yeah. CRT is not the best name for all the stuff that people are, you know, opposing or whatever, discussing. Uh, at the same time, to say it's completely unrelated would be wrong as well. Yeah, um, uh, yeah I, I think it's fair. I mean, I think it's fair to say, look, you know, I think CRT is influencing some of the things happening in our schools. And, and I, think that, 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 I think that's, you know, depending on what it is, I think that's kind of accurate. But the problem is, you know, why even go there? Why not just go directly to the thing that you don't like in the school? Exactly. Rather than say CRT impacted. Right. So I don't think CRT is this magical thing that, <laughs> you know, if it's around, that uh, that that it's just poison. Look, do I have do I have my difference with CRT? I do. Sure. Do I think that it also can bring some insight in certain ways? I do. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not yeah. this it's. I think I think its, it's influence has been overblown. I don't think it's this this deadly thing, but I think I think it, I think it does. There are certain problems. I think that it's I, I find a, I find certain 
claims of it not well defended, other claims yeah. uh, very insightful. Just like a lot of different yeah. ways. That's, I, I've gotten. I tried to get in the habit of just anytime a slogan or some big broad brush catchphrase is thrown at me, like "Hey, what do you think about this?" I'm like, I, my response is almost always, "Ask me about a particular issue within." Let's leave aside the slogan and, and let's ask me about a particular mm-hmm. issue that you think this thing's talking about. And I'll be honest. I mean, I'll, I'll probably say, you know, I don't know. I don't have enough expertise to have a strong opinion. Here's some thoughts I have, maybe, yeah. but. But uh, yeah, I think it, it, it's part of it's just laziness and that we are driven by fear and it's much easier to have our tribe tell us, here's this bad thing. Yeah. And then we don't have to do the hard work of actually examining that. We just say, okay, that thing, yeah. bad. This sounds like that, bad, bad tribe, bad, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it's right. just exacerbating yeah. that polarization, which hinders communication. Um, what did you think of D'Angelo's book? You mentioned her. Is it Beverly? No, Robin D'Angelo, White Fragility. Robin, yes, Robin, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah I'm I'm not that impressed with her book. Uh, I uh, I her her concept is not well defined. It's it's not something that you can really look at empirically. Hmm. You, you have to ask questions. All right, why is is fragility something unique to whites? Uh, if so, why? Hmm. Uh, why is it only whites would have this sort of fragility? She doesn't really answer that. There were there were some uh, factual errors in the book. For example, uh, she made a claim that uh, all presidents between, uh, see the I think it's 2016, you know, all these people are white, including the presidency. Well, of course that's not true. In 2016, Obama was our president up until, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the, it. I don't find it useful. I, I it's. She used very little research in that book. To, yeah. I mean, she she used some stuff on implicit bias, but that's that's very questionable the way that she was using mm-hmm. it. the The idea that talking to whites and, and and ultimately here's the big problem. All that the big problem is this. All right, so if we if you're a white person and you read White Fragility, what are you supposed to do? You know, and according to D'Angelo, basically what you're supposed to do is uh, shut up, listen to people of color, and do what they say. Yeah. Now, you know, at, as an African American guy, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> you know, yeah, listen to me, do what I say. You know, <laughs> I can live in that world. But I know, and research shows that that is not going to be very effective. There's a certain percentage of whites who are going to feel a certain amount of, of guilt and are going to abide by it. There's another percentage of whites who are going to rebel by it. But there's this third group, which I think is very interesting, who understand that race is a problem. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to convince them that institutional racism is a problem. They, they, they understand that, and they want to do something about it. But, and they may even try to go this route for a while. I, I've talked to some who have. They said, you know, I, I heard this, and I said, you know what, that's, what, that's our role. Mm-hmm. But ultimately being told to sit at the kid's table and not be able to have an input it's something that they sense is wrong. Mm. They, they they see problems. They cannot start to correct them, and they can't stay in that atmosphere. And, wow. and honestly, I can't. Believe them. Yeah. I, I can't stay in an atmosphere like that where I have to shut up and I'm not allowed to have an input in what's going to happen. Right. That and to me, that is beyond the other problems. That is the big problem with uh, white yeah. fragility. It does not provide a solution. It, it makes things worse. Yeah, I, I, again, I've read a lot of stuff on various sides and, and 
yeah, I just I just thought the book was just could have used some more editorial attention. Like it was just. <laughs> And to me, I, I'm open to whatever. Maybe she's totally. Maybe her conclusion's totally right. You know, I mean, I, I, it wasn't really yeah. about that. It was more how she got there that just seemed really terribly <clears throat> argued and just poorly done. And it seemed to capture like, you know, you had this kind of like white progressives that, you know, I think are, I don't know who's worse. You know, kind of the radical right or the white progressive group or whatever but i i think both of them have some serious issues <laughs> i'm reading a book yeah. i'm like this just exemplifies kind of like the almost the neo-colonial air that i feel from white progressive mm-hmm. i mean all the people hiring d'angelo to come in and do the diversity trainings or whatever like are, are they people of color are they primarily like white progressives <laughs> bringing her in i don't know i yeah. maybe i'm cynical that would, i just yeah, that would I don't be know. interesting yeah <laughs> There was that study. That would be interesting. I don't. I don't. Did you get my new book? You know, Nice Racism? No. <laughs> I haven't seen it. You not heard of the book? Nice Racism? Yeah, she gave a new book, Nice Racism. Yeah, which, which is interesting. I think the subtitle, and I don't remember, don't quote me what the word is, you know, how, how white progressives are making things worse. Oh, good. So okay. she has her audience. So yeah. she kind of has her audience. No, it was her critique of white progressives is not your critique of white progressives. Okay. Trust me on this. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So I uh, mean, she has her audience, uh, and I, I I guess you know this book is aimed at that audience. Okay. And yeah, I, my guess is, you know, the most the most culturally the most powerful people in this country are white progressives. Uh, a lot of white progressives own companies and and are rich. And so yeah, I mean, book like that, she she hits the right key. She could get. Huh. Called in and to speak in some more books, but uh, I don't. I've not read this book, so I can't critique it. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not eager to read it after having read White Fragility, so yeah. I'll see what I have. I liked Kendi's book better. I still have, you know, you know, it comes from a very, very far progressive um, framework. I, I thought it was better. I thought I, I got a lot more out of yeah. Kendi's book. I still have, you know, questions. Some. Again, I don't have enough knowledge base in the area to say I disagree, really. But it's some things I'm like, ah, I'm not sure this this is most helpful. Yeah. But I found his approach better. Um, yeah, there was that study that came out from a Yale, a couple of Yale or one Yale professor on how it was so fast. I just read it uh, this morning. Was it this morning or yesterday? Um, about how white progressives when they're speaking to people of color they like dumb down their language <laughs> did you see this i've heard i've heard that study yes and it wasn't it wasn't i mean it, it 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 was promoted by the washington post it wasn't like it wasn't crazy they you know they basically said like white conservatives don't care it wasn't enough to even try to build. Yeah. yeah yeah but the white yeah. progressives like dumb down their yeah, language so, yeah. and it's like so like ah like you think that's helpful <laughs> anyway um, now, I think white progressives would be an interesting group to study. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Here's here's what I'll say about Kendi. You know, I I have serious problems with Kendi's books as well. But Kendi is he is I, how should I put this? He is more serious in ways that D'Angelo is not. Okay. I think he is more serious about his 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 approach than yet. And maybe he feels freer to be more serious because he's an African American. She's white. I don't know. Huh. Uh, so in some ways, I mean, he's he's got this center at Boston University. Yeah, get millions of dollars for it. I mean, he he wants to make some real changes in society. Hmm. Now, I think some of his changes he wants to make are very problematic. Yeah, but I think that he's a more serious player in some ways sure. than D'Angelo is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think about some of the um, 
Well, they're not really. They're they're labeled as conservatives, but I don't think they all are. But some of the more uh, black intellectuals, like a uh, um, uh, John. Well, I mean, of course, McWhorter. yeah, John McWhorter or Glenn Lowry, Coleman Hughes, who's a young. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. he's pretty brilliant. Yeah. Um, Wilfred Riley, of course, Thomas Sowell and Shelby Steele, and these guys. Are, are you um, yeah. familiar with them? And do you have? thoughts or warnings about them <laughs> yeah i'm familiar with most of those uh riley i've only seen one article from him so okay. other than that i don't know that much about him uh, you know i i think is i think that they bring in their own perspective uh it's it, it's kind of interesting i mean a lot of what they bring is what i would call more colorblindness to it okay and yet being being an african-american when they do it when they do it, I, I, I have a lot of similar critiques when they do it, when they whites do it. So I'm just... Okay. But when they do it, they uh, almost... You can see that they acknowledge a little bit more that there are, that there are racial problems. And, sure. But they still come they, they, they still come back to the thing, the best thing to do is to ignore race. They acknowledge in a way that I don't always perceive when I when I hear certain whites talk about colorblindness. Okay. So I think it's a little bit different... Yeah, I would have to really do a close reading of them yeah. and some others to really articulate what I'm seeing. But I do feel that there's a there's a difference there. Sure. Okay. Now, as I said, I I'm, I'm I critique both approach, both them and yeah. whites and the cohorts because I don't think it works. Okay. But I think I think there is a little bit of awareness. Yeah, you know, racism is a problem. A little more. We just think that this is the best way to do it. Whereas when I read some whites, if they talk about colorblindness, it's like yeah. racism is not a problem. Can you so people could probably guess, but for the few that maybe not know what exactly that means, when you're when you speak of color blindness, in sure. more negative, like this isn't a help. Is the idea that the way to the way to beat race is to ignore race. The way okay. to beat racism is to ignore race. You know? okay. Don't treat anyone differently. Uh, don't treat it differently. You know, on a personal level, make sure the government doesn't treat anyone differently. You know, for actions a problem because it treats people differently by by race. Hate crimes legislation is a problem for the same reason. Okay. Program should not should be color neutral. Maybe that's a better term, color neutral. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's helpful. It, 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 doesn't it come from a misunderstanding of that famous Martin Luther King quote? Judge someone not by the color of the state. Yeah. The content of the A lot of people like to use that quote. I know. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. kind of like? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think that's, that's, that's where. I mean, I don't know if it. I don't know if it, it comes from that. Okay. And that quote you have to put in the context of King's entire life. Okay. So King's entire life was not about color blindness. You, you know, you could take anyone take a quote out of context and say, this is what this person represents. Huh. Uh, and King is finding at a different time, too. And that's something. King was, we are trying to deal with the, with the history of racial abuse. King was dealing with racial abuse at that current point in time. Sure. And so I think that, you know, you have to be very careful to, to just rip this quote out of context and then say, okay, this is King's life calling. Hmm. I think that people who do that are, are doing a disservice to King. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's good. Um, help us uh, give us some distinctively Christian perspectives on the race conversation, because a lot of what we've been talking about is more kind of the broad race conversation mm -hmm. in America. What yeah. are some things that Christians in particular should really make sure we don't lose sight of um, as we dive into this conversation? Yeah, I've already mentioned one. I think the whole notion of human depravity is something. And and it's easy for us to recognize it in others and hard for us to recognize it in ourselves. 
And so I think that we have to be very careful that we're, we're, we're open to human depravity in ourselves and listening to others. And that's kind of where I build on. Hmm. I also, though, would say that as Christians, we are charged to think of others hmm. and to put others before ourselves. And that aspect has to come to the racial conversation. That as I engage, I have to have in my mind, how am I going to engage in a way that that is to the benefit of you or who I'm engaging with and not just me? One of the things that I'd like to say is, you know, the big enemy of the Jews of that day were the Samaritans. Hmm. And, you know, you're a Bible teacher, so yeah. I'd have to tell you that the Samaritans, uh, there's a history there. Yeah. <laughs> The Samaritans were half-breeds in, in the way that we would think about today. You know, so in some ways, that is, while it's not a perfect parallel, it's a good parallel to think about racial issues. So how did the Bible treat the Samaritans in the New Testament? You know, the woman at the well. Yeah. You know, the story of the Good Samaritan. Okay, going to do what likewise. Yeah. You go in our society and find the Samaritans for you, and you do likewise. Hmm. You treat them with human dignity as Jesus did with the Lord of the well. You actually see them as having something to offer as Jesus did with the well. And you care about whatever. You see them as the Good Samaritan. You know, someone, if they're wounded, you take care of them as a Good Samaritan, took care of his, his ideological, ethical, ethnical enemy. Uh, You treat them in that way paying the the, uh, the uh, hotel manager, and I'll take up, you sacrifice for people you think of as your enemy. That is a hard road to hoe for anybody, for anybody. Yeah. But that's what I think we're called to do as Christians. Yeah, and, you know, I want to articulate a way in which we could try to do that. Yeah, that's great. Wow. Can you speak just in the couple minutes we have left directly to my uh, white Christian audience who is asking, I know we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but they're like, Hey, I, I don't like racism. I, I know I'm not sure what's going on. I hated what happened to George Floyd. Um, and yeah, I hate this polarization. What, what can we all do to, to help and further the race conversation? Yes. So, you know, for whites, as far as this racial conversation, it's a very difficult one. And I understand where whites come from is that, they don't want to be accused of being a racist. Right. And they don't want to accuse of anything they say is a racist. And I will be the first one to say that some of what some people of color do to whites is unfair. Mm-hmm. Some of the some of the hyper you know, some of the microaggression type stuff, you know, it's not well based. So some of it's unfair. So what do you do? Do you take that fear and then get back on the racial conversation? Well, there's a story once I was told of a bird. And this bird was flying around and some boys threw some rocks at it and wounded the bird and fell down. And the boys were coming around, they're sticking at the bird, you know, there's the little boys, this is what they do. Mm-hmm. And this girl's like, oh no, no, stop doing that. And she was like, get on the boys again and stop. So finally the boys got tired of messing the bird and stopped. So the bird was gonna lovely go and, and pick up the bird. The bird saw the girl and bit the girl. <laughs> Why the bird bite the girl? The bird bit the girl, bit the girl because it experienced with, with kids at, to that point had been to throw rocks at it and to stick it. And so when the girl came at the bird with love, its reaction was to strike back. Sometimes people of color strike back. It is not always fair. 
It is, however, understandable. As white Christians, your call is to love through that. Now, are there people who are unreachable that you have to sometimes let go? Yes, there are. But the best we can do is to love people through that. Understand why the pain may be there. Listen to the pain. Mm-hmm. Listen, sometimes people just need to vent their pain. They're not looking for solutions. Mm-hmm. When they want solutions, that's when the mutual conversation has to occur. But sometimes all people need is someone who's there to understand that they're in pain. Listen to that. And then as things open up, I would also say to whites, when you reach out to people of color, don't reach out in a way to where you're maintaining control. What I mean by that is if you want to, if there's a black congregation, don't go to the black congregation and say, hey, we have the answers. Here's what you need to do. Find out what that black congregation is doing and you support them in what they're doing. And then develop those relationships. So over time, it's going to be mutual. So I'm a big believer in mutual relationships, but I also know that the way it's developed, we're going to have to work towards that at times. Yeah. It's not going to just happen over, you know, just instantly. Hey, we're equal, and we just have this this easy conversation. Yeah. Understand where the pain comes from, and then be ready to deal with that. The book is uh, Beyond Racial Division. You can go pre-order it now. I'm going to go pre-order it now. Or maybe I'll ask your publisher to send me a copy because I had <laughs> you want okay. to save me a few bucks. But sure. George, thank you so much. Man, I, I so enjoyed this conversation. And um, I just love your perspective. I love your humility and, and just your emphasis on that kind of active listening and, and being genuinely curious. I, man, if we can all do that, I think the world would be a better, better place. So thank you so much for this. This is a super helpful conversation. Really appreciate you. Thank you, and God bless. Okay. Hey, friends, if you've been blessed, challenged, encouraged, or angered by this podcast, would you consider supporting it through Patreon.com? That's Patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. All the info is in the show notes. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to Q&A podcasts, um, monthly Patreon-only blogs, and basically just get access to the community and help support this uh, ministry that we're doing at Theology in the Raw. Again, check out the show notes and consider supporting this show.